thing is, we're getting closer and closer, and it's nice to know that we get through a long, hard winter, <coughs> and then the Passover is upon us. Um, I asked you last week to keep in mind and prayers the Hubbles down in Texas and uh, their daughter and family, the Dungans. Uh, I've uh, obtained their addresses and emails, and they're over here on a sheet on the uh, end table, side table there along the wall. For those who might want to send a card or phone or something, I, uh, George Hubble did send me an email and say that uh, they very much appreciated uh, the interest and input and prayers of people of God, wherever they may be, and us in particular since I had mentioned it, but uh, they are having serious health problems in those two families, uh, and they've been chronic and long-term in uh, some cases, and uh, therefore along with that comes frustration and even discouragement and so on. It's hard to maintain a positive mental outlook when uh, things are bad. So, uh, they did say, or he said, that uh, especially uh, Janet, the daughter who is suffering with cancer, appreciates cards and even calls, uh, especially from those who have suffered with or are suffering with cancer as well, because, you know, you can kind of talk the same language. It's, when, when there's something that serious, it's very hard for someone who has not walked that mile to completely understand where someone is and what's going on in their lives. So those kinds of calls are particularly, or, or contacts, are particularly helpful to her. So I wanted to pass that along <coughs> so that you might be able to have the addresses. Now, some time ago, I began a series of sermons entitled where is my honor? Taking that from Malachi 1.6, where God is decrying the fact that he is not receiving the kind of honor that he deserves. We got away from that for quite some time, but I want to go back there because we were analyzing God from several standpoints and how we should honor him as a creator, as the Almighty One, in various forms and offices that he holds. And today I want to uh, continue that. I think I started into the living God, uh, maybe in that last one in that series. I, I'm not sure, uh, but I think I started to go there at least. But I want to go back to that today. It is an extremely critical issue. Now, I understand that I may be in one sense preaching to the choir here. We do believe that there is a God who is alive. And yet, it is a big question out in the world, and it is a question of paramount importance to God himself. In the old Worldwide Church of God, we had a booklet entitled, Does God Exist? Uh, we had an article entitled, Why God is Not Real to Most People. And I think I went over some of that in that last sermon, but it's been so long that uh, I, I want to approach, approach this uh, from a fresh standpoint, <clears throat> and especially right now, in terms of where we are in the world, in prophecy, in the return of Christ, and so on. 
And it ties in a little bit with what we were discussing in the last two sermons, and that is, who is going to come against Israel? Who will attack America? I spent two weeks on that, and I hurried through it. I will apologize again for going so rapidly, but I didn't want to spend a great deal of time on that, and for this reason. Why should we worry about who's coming after us if we know where we're headed? And I would rather spend more time on who we need to be focusing on rather than focusing on trouble to come. Focusing on trouble to come gets you nowhere. Isaiah 8, as I read last week, says very clearly, Do not fear the confederacy or the conspiracy or those who might be coming after you. Fear me instead. Now, we know the Russians are real, don't we? We know the Chinese are real. Do we know God is real? Christ himself even said, When I return, will I find faith on the earth? What is faith? Faith is the evidence of things not seen. We don't see God. He does not come and talk with mankind very often, as Christ said he would not do, when he ascended back to heaven. So we have a crisis on the earth today. Hardly anybody believes in a true living God. And even God's people have trouble understanding, comprehending, and living as if God is himself living. Now the world, even that part of the world that claims to worship God, pays no attention, for the most part, to his words. They don't want to do what he says. In other words, is he there? Does he care? What does it mean to them? And you have the New Age movement today, which has gained a great deal of steam, and it is part and parcel with the evangelical movements and so on, the big Protestant movements of the day. And they don't really believe a God exists. For the most part, Mormondom is the same way. There isn't a real, live being. Now, is Oprah Winfrey or Glenn Beck or some of those New Agers believe, God is as you understand Him. Or, however you imagine God to be, He is to you. Or whatever you decide God is, he is to you. So they're saying that it's all a matter of your perceptions. That God can be this, God can be that, God can be something else, depending on what you think. And it really goes back to the power of positive thinking, that if you think positively, then that does you good. And therefore, that is God to you. I've even heard people say that the word good is only one letter removed from God. So they use the words interchangeably. God is good or good is God. So if you do good, then that becomes God to you. 
There are all kinds of fantasies and imaginations that people have drummed up, dreamed up, as to what they think God is. What is he to you? How real is he to you? Now, I ask those questions of you, who accept that God is a living being, for a very important reason. And I'm going to get to that reason, not so much today, but probably next week. Because it is critical to what you and I are to do and to be in the next months and years to come. And I will show that from Scripture. <clears throat> so, try not to dismiss this and say, well, I know God exists, and therefore tune out and uh, go into whatever dream world your mind tends to go to. Different ones go to different dreamlands. But the world has a dreamland about God, and they do not understand nor know. Notice that in Zephaniah 1. Zephaniah 1. Now, this is the chapter where God proclaims that he is going to cause our houses to go away, or us to move out of them. He proclaims that he is going to cause a great financial crash to come. And he makes comment about the attitudes people would have in this day and age when the collapse of the economy of the world and of this nation in particular is about to occur. And here is the attitude, verse 12. It shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles. Now, Jerusalem is a word that encompasses all Israel or in Judah, Judaism, uh, true Jews as well, because God referred to Israel and or the northern nations or Samaria and uh, uh, the capital that was then of Judah, Jerusalem, just as we speak of Washington representing this nation. So Jerusalem is not used in terms of just a city, but in terms of a people. And that's what he's referring to here. I will search the land, the people, my people, with candles, and punish the men that are settled on their lees. They're just sitting back, doing their thing, not too concerned, and here is what they're not concerned about. They say in their heart, the eternal will not do good. Now, God's not going to bless us. God isn't going to do anything for us. Who's God? Where's God? We're just going on, and it doesn't seem like God does anything. So God's not going to do good, but then neither will he do evil. So if God isn't involved in doing good, he's not going to hurt us either. Everything will be okay. So they're saying, in that sense, that God is neutral or neutered, which is a word that is from the root word neuter. He is not a factor. He is not involved. Different ways of expressing the same thought. Now, we wrestle with that one at times, do we not? We pray and wonder, well, why aren't my prayers answered more? What's going on? Why doesn't God do this? Why doesn't God do that? He isn't doing good for me. Well, I guess he's not doing me any evil either. It is a Laodicean 
middle of the road attitude. God will do neither good nor evil. He is a non-factor. Now, he became that when we began to take him for granted in Worldwide. And he did evil, didn't he? He blew us apart for that attitude. Now, we cannot afford to have the attitude that is here. That is why the crash is coming. Is because of the attitude of the nations of Israel toward Almighty God. That's why it's coming. It isn't coming because of the Federal Reserve. It is not coming because of this president or that president. It is not coming because of fiat money. It is coming because we don't believe in and obey God in heaven. That's why the crash is coming. Now, all these other factors are there that bring about the collapse. But make no mistake, God is directing and is behind it and is allowing Satan and men to cause this to happen to Israel. And this is a critical attitude because it is right in the middle of this decree of destruction. And it is the only attitude, really, that is mentioned here. God will not do good, nor will God do evil. God is a non-factor. Now, do you like it if someone approaches you and says, you're a non-factor, you're unimportant, you don't mean anything, I, I discredit you, I discount you, who do you think you are anyway? Now, those are not encouraging, inspiring, helpful words, are they? We don't like to be approached that way. I'll tell you what, the creator of the universe doesn't either. And we have a world full of evil and killing and murder and lying and stealing and fraud of every kind. And God does not like it. Did he get very angry about a thousand years after he created mankind? Yes, he did. He finally sent a flood and destroyed almost everyone. Now, can he do good? Or evil? There are people that believe God didn't even cause a flood. There are a lot of those. Or they believe it was just a local thing. They don't believe that there's a creator, God, who can do anything he wants to do because he's alive and powerful. Now, where do we stand in all this? The attitude in Sephaniah might be somewhat problematic to us. I hope that it is not. Do we really believe God is alive, and do we have faith so that we do what he wants done instead of what we want done? Because we believe that God ultimately is going to do good to us if we obey him, and he is going to do evil to us if we disobey him. Therefore, we strive to do what is right. Now, if that were not a problem even with us, why would God say, why will you die, O Israel? Why would we make the mistakes we make? Why would we 
think the things we think. If we truly, fully believe with all our heart that God will do good and God will do evil. So it's not just for the world. There is instruction here for you and for me. Now, mankind fears by nature. We're physical. We like to fear. We wish we didn't, but we do anyway. We wish we didn't worry, but we indulge ourselves and worry anyway. Because we lack faith in God. It's bad enough to worry about the Russians. It's bad enough to worry about the Chinese or the Islamics. They're having their little thing over in Egypt today in Tunisia and it may spread. And I've heard comments, well, we'll probably hear a lot about that tomorrow. No, you won't. Not today you won't. Not for me you won't. That's the least of my concerns. Well, maybe not the very least, but it's not a big deal. Because I know all these things are coming. And I know a way out of it. And my focus needs to be on he who can do good, not he who will do evil to us. We can worry about the Syrians. We, we saw that the Assyrians are the ones that will lead this march against and battle against us. And will destroy this land along with their allies. It's coming. But God says, don't fear them, fear me. Now let's take it even further. There is a growing number of people on the earth today that through internet and many volumes of books really that have been written about not only mankind with nuclear bombs that are coming after us, now we have the Nephilim returning. Oh, you know what they are? They're half demon and half man. And they're big. And you can't fear the Russians and Chinese and the Islamics enough, then let's fear the Nephilim. Anyone who believes in Nephilim does not understand the Bible, nor do they understand God. I'm loath to go into a sermon on that. I may have to someday. The misunderstanding of Genesis, they think that demons came down and married women. No, they did not. Kind begets kind. Christ himself said, that in the resurrection there is the angels in heaven. They don't cohabit, if you will. It doesn't happen. Spirit is spirit, 1 Corinthians 15 and physical is physical. They, you cannot be both. Now, if someone's half spirit and half physical, what do they got? One lung? Just breathe with one? They don't have to breathe with the other one. Which, which half is spirit? Physical? Goes out into the universe and other planets and comes back? That is one of the biggest crocks of stuff I have ever heard. It is totally unbiblical. And yet people are so afraid of it. Come on! Why would you fear something that's half physical and half spirit? 
Why not just go ahead and fear that which is totally spirit, Satan and his demons? They'd be even worse, wouldn't they? Far more power than something that's sort of a half and half. What do you call it? Ah, never mind. I was trying to put hermaphrodite in there, half spirit and half human, and change the word around, but let it go. They don't exist. Satan and the demons do. And are they coming? Yes, they are. Is Satan going to be cast back? Yes, he is. And the first one he's going to come after is the church. Oh, let's get scared. Satan's coming after the church first. That'd be us. Are we supposed to fear that too? No. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and God will draw near to you. Human beings will fear men. They will fear a figment of their imagination, half man, half spirit. And some of them will even fear Satan and his demons. God says, don't fear anything but me. So we waste a lot of time and energy fearing things that God says, don't fear. He told Joshua, going into the promised land, don't fear, be strong, be of good courage, read your Bible and trust me. That's what he told him. He tells us here at the end time, don't fear, be strong, be of good courage, and work. God's message is the same, beginning and end. So, why did he say those things at different junctures in history? He said them because we tend to fear as human beings. Now, I'm not knocking us and saying we should all feel discouraged because we fear. What I'm trying to get across is we need to educate ourselves and get our mind and our focus in such a place, in such a way, that it removes fear. Drawing close to God and studying His Word and having confidence and faith in it removes fear. Constantly reading all this stuff about who is going to kill us, they're coming from outer space, and whatever you want, all that does is kindle and give birth to fear. Now, yes, we should watch what's going on. We should see the signs of the end of the age and the coming of Christ. <clears throat> we need to be aware of those things. And so I'm not saying we shouldn't watch the news and be uh, educated on what is happening. That's okay, but let's be careful we don't overdo it to, at the expense of having our minds in here and reading the things that will remove fear. Okay? The right balance. I suspect sometimes we spend more time with TV, Internet, whatever, printed matter, reading about all the horrible things that will happen instead of reading God's Word about all the good things He's going to do. Now, if you want something to fear, read all the things in here He says He's going to do. Fear Him. Let's get our perspective right. I knew you didn't get it last week, so I thought I'd repeat some of this and expand upon it a bit. Why didn't you get it? 
because it is innate within us, intrinsically part of us, that we wish to fear. We need to get over it. We need to get past it. We need to quietly, patiently obey God and trust Him in faith that if we do the things we're supposed to do, He will take care of us. And if we don't do the things we're supposed to do, we need to fear Him because He can and will do evil if we don't do what we're supposed to. So it all comes down to us and God, doesn't it? It doesn't have anything to do with the peoples of the earth or so-called phantoms from, the, from outer space or even real live Satan and his demons. They're inconsequential if our relationship with God is right. So, is he there? Does he exist? Let's go, first of all, to <clears throat> Judges 8. Judges 8. Here's a story of Gideon. And uh, when they had the 300 men and the lamps and so on, when the sons of Midian were come up against Israel, and Zima and, or Zalmunna and Ziba, I guess it was, uh, had been leaders of Midian and had done some killing. So Gideon approached them in verse 19, and he said, These people you slew were my brethren, even the sons of my mother, as the Eternal lives. If you had saved them alive, I would not slay you. And then he went ahead and slew them. Now Gideon, and what I want to point out, is that he was very much aware of God, very much aware that God was alive, and that God was involved in the lives of Israel, in his own life, and in the lives of those who went to battle with him. Now, he had just seen God destroy the Midianites in a miraculous way. So he had been reminded very recently that God was alive and could do these things. He wasn't dead. He wasn't a figment of someone's imagination. He was a living, active being who could intervene and do something. And you'll find through, uh, not just judges, but through uh, Samuel, perhaps kings, some, that men of God there often said or use the expression, as the eternal lives, just as Gideon did here. I'm not going to go to all those, there are a lot of them. But there was the very real understanding in their minds that God was alive, that he could perform acts. And in a way, it was kind of a form of swearing that I will do such and such, or I think such and such, as God lives. That the most important thing in my mind is that God is alive, and the greatest testimony or the greatest witness I can give to you of what I intend to do, will do, or have done, is that God is alive. He's not dead. He's not gone off somewhere, and He's not in a neutral stance where he won't do good or won't do evil. He is alive. Now, that was Gideon's approach. <clears throat> Let's see about David. Go to 2 Samuel. I'm going to quote a few 
passages from some of the men of God because David is going to be the king of all Israel. Now, I think I wrote this down wrong. I've got 2 Samuel 24, 47, and we run out way before that. I do that once in a while. Um, does anybody see that? Well, forget it. Go to Psalm 18. It's there. Psalm 18. In here I want verse 46. Maybe I wrote that down uh, in Samuel instead of here. Here David says, The Eternal lives, and blessed be my rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. Now, David was not in the mood of God doesn't do good or evil. He says he's alive, he's my rock, and he is going to save me. I exalt him. I honor him. Because he is the God of salvation. Now that's the attitude that we need to have toward God. He is very much alive and he can do things. Notice Psalm 42. As the deer pants after the water, so pants my soul after you, O God. Now, the deer is very thirsty and looks for a spring, a brook of water. They might ease the thirst. A hot summer day. David said, that's the way I seek God. Not as if God is neutral, but that's the way. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? Now, we're in this position. We have read many, many promises from God, have we not, of things He will do here in the end time and in the millennium, from a point in time henceforth when God arises to do His work, His mighty work. We've read all those scriptures, and we expect those things to come. And yet, sometimes it seems they're a long time in coming. Our patience is tried. We can even become discouraged and not believe these things. That's why we need to go back over them in our own study. Sometimes I've preached them so many times myself, and yet I'll get a little bit down and think, Oh man, is it ever going to be here? How could this be? How could all these things going to be happening? So I go back and I read them. And then I'm encouraged and empowered and feel good again. And I'm renewed. I believe that God is going to do them. Christ said you have to seek him as you seek silver and gold. Or as a deer pants after water here. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And people say, where is your God? We've come out here in the desert, in the wilderness to try to get away from Babylon as much as we can, and yet still be in it, as it says in Micah 4. And people will mock, say, oh yeah, God is going to deliver you? Where is He? Where is your God? I truly believe God is going to do all those things He said. And I'm going to be here, and I'm going to wait until it happens. 
with the help of God. And if I continue reading the Scriptures, and if I continue to believe what I believe today, and I think that I shall because I will go back to the Scriptures regularly and read the things He says He's going to do to strengthen my belief, my faith in Him, and that He will do what He says. Now, Gideon, David, Samuel, Elijah were not the only ones that said, as the Lord lives. I can go to Isaiah or Jeremiah, some of those places, and find quotes where God says, as I live, says the Eternal. He swears by no other name than his own because he knows he will do what he said he would do. How much do we believe him? Do we believe him enough that it motivates us, strengthens us, empowers us, helps us overcome and grow so that we might be accounted worthy to escape these things? You know, it does you no good to fear what's coming if you don't do something that would cause you to escape it. It's coming. And if God does not deliver you and me as individuals, it will come upon us just like everyone else. It is a matter of our relationship with the living God. How much we believe in Him. As I have said before, you could know where to be, you could know where to go. When the armies surround Jerusalem, you could begin to flee to the mountains. And if God has not accounted you worthy based on your overcoming and growing and belief and faith in Him, you will fall and break your leg and not get there. Or the enemy will overtake and kill you, which is their firm intent and purpose. It is only with God's deliverance. So even being in the right place at the right time is no guarantee. He says, pray that you be accounted worthy. Otherwise, it will not happen. So you can be motivated by fear of this world and other worlds, if you wish. It will not save you. If you are made motivated by fear of God and obey all His laws and ways to the absolute best you can, and then pray for mercy, perhaps you will be accounted worthy. God does not do things without cause and effect. He wants us to put Him first, foremost, and in focus as the object of our desires, as our goal, as our purpose. Psalm 84. How amiable are your tabernacles, O eternal of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the eternal. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. David had a strong urgency to be close to God. And he reiterates here. 
that it is a living God he seeks. What good does a dead God do you? What good does a God that can't or won't do good or evil do you? None. He was after the living God. Sometimes people find it easier to believe Satan is alive than they do that God is alive. They fear Satan more than they do God. I don't want to go into all that. I don't even like to focus on Satan. I don't even like to talk about Satan. I don't want my mind there. I want my mind on God. And God will take care of Satan for me. That's the point. Seek God with all your heart. What about Elijah? Going past David, let's go to 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings 17. Story here of Elijah. And Elijah was one that God used a great deal as a prophet in Israel. Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the eternal of God, God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Elijah believed God enough that when God told him that it would not rain, except by Elijah's word, Elijah believed it. And you know what? It didn't rain over three years. And when it came time... Elijah told his assistant, go look and see if there's any clouds. No, don't see any clouds. Go look again. See any clouds? Well, I finally saw one little one. And it grew, and it rained. Now, Elijah had to do some believing, didn't he? In God. Remember the priests of Baal story about Elijah? And how the priests of Baal... We're up against God, and the people of Israel were worshiping the priests of Baal, and Baal himself, Satan, worshiping Satan, as Americans do, and don't even know it. Elijah called them all out, line them up here. You guys, call on Baal. See if he can burn this wood, this sacrifice, this animal. No. Didn't happen. They yelled and screamed and prayed and cut themselves and all manner of things. Didn't happen. Came Elijah's turn. He said, all right, get wood, get water, soak the wood good, dig a trench around it, put it in water. And then he called on God. And fire came from heaven and devoured the sacrifice, the wood, and the water. And then he said, grab all the priests of Baal, and they killed every one of them. Now there was a living God, an active God, who could do good for Israel and did evil to the priests of Baal. Elijah believed in a living God. How about Job, chapter 19? Is this the God you worship? Is this the one you know? Do you know a God that can do miracles? 
that is going to do incredible miracles in the months and years to come? Is that the one you believe in? Or one that doesn't really do much? Now, doesn't he say, I will put you through trials and troubles and tribulations and sicknesses and all kinds of problems? Yes, he does. But then he also says, at some point, I'm going to heal you and empower you. Now, we're going through the trials and troubles and discouragements and frustrations, aren't we? God's Word is good. Going through exactly what He said we'd go through. You know what? Trials, troubles, and tribulation should increase our faith that God is God because He said these things would be here. He said He would turn His face from us and we would go through all manner of trouble and shattering and splintering splintering and dividing, frustration and confusion which has come upon the church. He said it. The very fact that the church has fallen apart should not discourage us and cause us to give up, but it should convince us that there is a living God who does do evil. And has. We should be so more firmly committed to Him now, having seen what He prophesied and seen it happen, even though it's been evil, hurtful, harmful, and confusing. It proves there's a God because it proves His Word is true and that He would do to us exactly what He did to us because we took Him for granted. He ain't going to do good. He ain't going to do evil. He's just going to save us. Kind of protestant Now, with that backdrop, when he says, turn to me, obey me and serve me, and then I will do you good, we should have no problem at all believing that. Right? He said he'd do evil and he did it. Still is. And now he says, when you repent, I will turn and do good to you. We should more firmly believe that now as a result of the trouble than we did before. But instead, people lose sight of God and what He said, and they get discouraged and frustrated instead. Why are we frustrated when God does what He said He would do? Because it happened to us. Well, why did it happen to us? Because we did what He told us not to. And we weren't what we should have been. And therefore, it came on us. Now, if we'll do what we're supposed to, It will leave us, and blessing will come. It's all cause and effect. Job 19. Uh, Let's go down to about 25. This is something that uh, Handel used in the Messiah. I know that my Redeemer lives. There's a song of using that phrase that we used to sing in the chorale. And that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Job understood that God, Christ, is alive and that he is coming back to this earth. And though after my skin, uh, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. He knew that he would be resurrected and see God. 
Now that requires quite a belief system, does it not? Here's a human being. He knows that even though he has never seen God, that he will be redeemed from the earth. He believes in a resurrection. He says, I'm going to die and worms are going to eat me. Dust to dust. Worm poop I am. That's where I'm headed. But I know I'm going to be resurrected. Wow. That's pretty good. You and I believe that, don't we? It's appointed to all men once to die, and we'll rot and stink, but then we'll live. Now that requires faith. It requires an understanding that there is some being somewhere who can do that, who is not dead, who is not a figment of my imagination, or that good is God and God is good, or God is whatever you think He is. That's just a wild idea that people use to try to encourage themselves in human life. Christian scientists, God is a spook in your imagination. No, he's alive, and he can resurrect. Do we believe that with all our heart? Job did. Let's go to Jeremiah. Well, Isaiah 37, I'm not going to go through this whole thing, but I, I want to recount the story in Isaiah. This is where King Hezekiah uh, was being threatened by the king of Assyria. And he sent all kinds of messengers, wanted Hezekiah to come and serve him, and he would do all kinds of wonderful things for Israel if they would just do it, and every man would be able to sit under his own vine and fig tree, and the Assyrian would bring peace and happiness and prosperity to Israel. Sounded good. King of Assyria was a pretty good salesman. We have another king of Assyria coming up pretty soon, who's going to have a pretty good line, pretty good story. And the world's going to accept it. Now, Hezekiah turned it down. And what happened? When, God, when Hezekiah turned to God and denied the king of Assyria, God caused 145,000 Assyrians to die in one night. And King Sennacherib of Assyria went home, and then his sons killed him. And there was peace in Hezekiah's day. Now, I said, I think, last week that I believe that Hezekiah, uh, or that Herbert Armstrong was an end-time type of Hezekiah. And even though he believed the Assyrian was coming against us, it didn't happen in his lifetime, and he died in peace. And his sons, those in the church, went into Babylon and were emasculated, neutered there, and have been powerless. The church is powerless. It can't call people. It can't do a great work. Even those who say they are going to do a great work and have been attempting to find themselves dividing and fracturing right now, some of them. And others will quite soon as well. Because we are eunuchs in Babylon and can do nothing. Herbert Armstrong did a work. 
but the Assyrian did not come in his time. Some call him a false prophet because that didn't happen. Still going to happen. It's coming in our time instead. And we are going to face the Assyrian when he comes into our land. Now we have this story in Isaiah. It's witness that God can take care of the Assyrian. And he says he's going to make us, the church, not the nation, a new threshing instrument. And that we will thresh the king of Assyria when he comes into our land. They're going to destroy this land, they and their allies. But if we obey God and are strong and believe in the living God, then he will take care of us. And even the king of Assyria, I think, in the story is what led me here, talked about your living God. That's not entirely unusual for Gentile kings to do. We'll see in just a moment another one that did somewhat the same thing. It may have been mocking, you know. Oh, you have a living God? Right. You need to worship me instead. No, 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 won't do that. This is coming again. And the beast arises on the face of the earth and says, Worship me. And the new religion, the false prophet, that other beast, says, Worship the beast. And everybody does but us. Right? Jeremiah. Chapter 2, or 4, I mean. If you will return, O Israel, says the Eternal, return to me, and if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then shall you not remove or go into captivity. And you shall swear the Eternal lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. And the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in, and in him shall they glory. We'll return to God and see that he's alive and do what he says. We will not be removed. Now, I know that most of this nation will not take this advice. And God even says in Jeremiah 50 or 51, do not even pray for them somewhere in there. Because they're not going to repent. Now, I pray for you because I think you're in the process of repenting. There is hope for you, but there's no hope for this nation until after this terrible captivity happens. That's what it will take to get people to turn and say, maybe God is alive. Man, all this stuff happened. We have a chance to believe it now. Jeremiah 10, verse 10. This is a very interesting one in this context. As you know, Jeremiah 10 talks about the Christmas tree and us not being dismayed at the signs of the heathen and so on, and then begins to uh, describe the Christmas tree. Deck it with silver and gold, in verse 4. They fasten it with nails and hammers, that it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be carried, because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also it is in them to do good. So he said, don't be afraid of the Christmas tree in Christmas. Just don't learn the way of the heathen. So he goes on down and says that all this religious stuff that has been introduced into Israel means nothing. Verse 10, but the eternal is the true God. 
He is the living God and an everlasting King. The Jesus that they put under the Christmas tree is a false Christ. Actually, they worship Satan the devil and don't even know it. And Christ told the Pharisees that. You worship, you know not what. You worship your father the devil. They thought they worshiped God. No, you don't. The things you do show who your master is. If you do the things that Satan says, then he's your master and he's your God. If you do the things God says, then he's your God. This world is doing the things Satan wants them to do and doing very, very little, if anything, that God wants them to do. Now, who is their God? It even says Satan is the God of this world and deceives the whole world. Revelation 12, 9. On and on it goes. People, by the way they live, <coughs> believe in Satan more than they believe in God. How about us? <coughs> how much do you believe in Satan and how much do you believe in God? Who do you serve? Who do you listen to? Who do you obey? What impulses you have do you follow as opposed to the ones you don't? Jeremiah 23. <coughs> Here I want down about verse 36. And the burden of the eternal shall you mention no more. People say, well, God's way is a burden. God is putting a burden on us. Sometimes we could look at it that way, couldn't we? The burden of the Lord you shall mention no more. For every man's word shall be his burden... For you have perverted the words of the living God, of the Lord of hosts, our God. <coughs> we must be very careful not to pervert God's words, because you can't create God in your mind to be what you want him to be. He's alive. He has a certain way of life. He says, do this, 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 and this. So you don't have the option of saying... Well, I'll, I think God's like this, or I think God's like that. The Christian scientists think he's this way. The Mormons think he's that way. No, he is what he is. And he talks about himself and defines himself in this word. So we don't have the option to say, well, I'll create whatever type of God I want. That's an idol. For you to decide what God is is creating an idol. You have to go in here and see how he defines himself. He tells us who he is. Believe what he says. Not what you dream up or somebody tells you, but what he says. It's all that matters. He's going to prove very soon that he's alive. Guaranteed. And it is not going to be pleasant or pretty. Uh, Daniel 4. Daniel 4. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned. Remember, he went out, crazy old fool was out there eating grass for seven years. 
after seven times, seven years came upon him, his understanding returned. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that lives forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What are you doing? Even King Nebuchadnezzar, after seven years of eating grass, said, Hey, God lives. No one can dispute him. A wicked king had more understanding of God at the end of this period of time than most people do today. Chapter 6, verse 26. King Darius, verse 25, wrote to all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Not my God, he said. Fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and steadfast forever, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and in earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lion. Now, here was a Gentile king who came to understand that God is alive and God can do miracles. This man had thrown other people in the lion's den before. And they got eaten. And he threw the guys that had uh, conspired against Daniel in after this. And they got eaten before they barely even got to the bottom of the den. God made a, deliver, a believer out of Darius the king. He's going to make a believer out of the world. Daniel 12, verse 7. <clears throat> this is the end time when Michael stands up. A time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. In verse 1. And it talks about those who are wise, who will shine as the stars, and so on. And then he saw this man standing, clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river. And the question was asked, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? Verse 6. And in verse 7, I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him that lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and a half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. Now, is the process of scattering the holy people in process? Yes, it is. 
The power of the church has been divided and scattered. There is going to be one more time when a powerful remnant of God's church is brought together under the two witnesses, and it will be a powerful work for three and one-half years, time, times, and half a time. And that's the specific time that this is referring to. Now, it's already being scattered, but it will rejoin for one last effort, and then it will be totally destroyed again. Two witnesses will be killed in the streets of Jerusalem, and the power that the church had will be completely finished, scattered, shattered, and then Christ will return three and a half days later. It'll be finished. So he, this angel is swearing by God in heaven that that's the end of time. Now that's still a long ways off. There's a guy making a lot of noise right now on the internet and here and there about how what May 24th or whenever it is that he's proclaimed is going to be the end. The secret rapture is going to occur. People are all excited and worried about it. It's amazing how much interest that's generating. It's all hogwash. That's the stuff you wash off a hog. That's not three and a half years from now, is it? And the tribulation hasn't even begun yet. It's going to happen this coming May. But I know people that are all up in arms about this, worried about it. Lord's coming. No, not then he's not. It says here, an angel swore. But not till after these 1,335 total days are done here in Daniel 12. And they haven't even started yet. So Christ's return is not anywhere near three and a half years from now. I can tell you all kinds of events in this book that have to happen before he comes. And they're events that are going to take time. Now, it may happen within ten years, and I'm not predicting that. I'm just saying it's not far off, but it's not this coming May. Not if you believe the words that are written here and what that angel swore. And he swore by whom? The living God, who can make it happen the way he says. Hosea. Go to chapter 1, right after this. Verse 10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass, that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, then it shall be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. Now God has said, You're not my people. You don't look like me. You don't act like me. You look like... Hittites, Amorites, there in Ezekiel 16, first two or three verses. You don't look like me at all. You look like pagans. But it's going to turn around. And God is going to do some incredible events. And people are going to repent. And then it will be said, you are the sons of the living God. I will be your God and you will be my people. God can make it happen.
We sometimes use that expression. You say, well, I want to do such and such and such. And, and you say, make it happen. Well, sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. God can make it happen. Going to. Matthew 16. Go to the New Testament a while. What kind of witness do we have here about God? Matthew 16, here's what Peter had to say. Christ wondered, do you guys know who I am? Verse 15, he said to them, but whom say you that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter believed God is alive. That he exists, that he has form, that he has shape, that he has a mind. God talks about his breath, he talks about his arms, his legs, his head. He said we're built in his image. He's shaped like us. He is a finite being, shape and form, and is alive. You're the son of the living God. Chapter 22. Here I want verse 32. Verse 31. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, remember the words of Job, said he was going to be resurrected, but remember the words of God, who said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's our God. We're still alive. A God means nothing to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob right now, does he? They're dead. They, the dead know nothing. We're alive. Now, they believed when they were alive, and they're going to be resurrected. But we are alive, and we are capable of believing Scripture. Is it a living God? Chapter 26, verse 63. But Emmanuel held his peace, and the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you be Christ, the Son of God. So even this priest recognized that God is a living God. And he was a pagan Jew. But he recognized it. Let's go to John. Here, verse 51. Just picking out some scriptures. Christ himself said, verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. He says, I'm alive, and if you eat of me, take in what I am, then you too will live. And forever. The bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He gave his life that we might have life. That through forgiveness of sin, that... Didn't I say John 6, verse 51? I knew I was going to 6. Why didn't you? 
uh, verse 57. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eats me, even he shall live by me. So he's a living God, and he says, I can give you life too. Hey, this is, this is pretty good stuff, isn't it? We're human. And we're deteriorating, aren't we? From the moment we're born, we begin to die. And once we hit 33, 34, we really, there we go. And it gets worse and worse as you go. And you become more and more aware as things don't work and hurt that you're going to die. Now, here's a way to get out of that. Well, I mean, you're going to go ahead and go through it maybe physically unless you live until he returns. But you'll be resurrected back to life. I will raise him up the last day, verse 54. So, God has to be alive if he is going to resurrect us. Verse 69, And we believe and are sure that you are that Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, if God the Father were not alive and Christ died like all men do, he was going to stay dead unless somebody was powerful enough to raise him up. Who would that have been? We've lost loved ones. Do we have the power to resurrect? No. We just bury them. That's all we can do. It's the best we can do. God can raise them. How much do we believe that? Do we really know with all our hearts, that God is going to raise our loved ones and us from the dead? We better know it. We better know it. And if you don't know it, you better find out. Acts 14. This is Acts 14, verse 15. All right, you got the chapter. And saying, Sirs, why do you these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach to you that you should turn from these vanities to the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. Interesting languages or language. Believe in the living God who made everything you see. Romans 1 says we know him by the things he created. We've already discussed God as the creator in a previous sermon. So I won't go there in depth, but these things all tie together. He had to be alive to create life and to create us. And that is the case. Chapter uh, Romans 9. Uh, I'm going to go through a few of these very quickly here. Romans 9, verse 26. I mean, we could pick up the context and maybe even see a little more. But I want us to see. The, the thought process, the mentality, the mind of some of these men of God. Romans 9, verse 26. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. We already read that in Hosea, didn't we? Well, it's brought forward here by Paul in the book of Romans. Paul was instructed by what Hosea said. And he repeated it to the New Testament church. So if you think, why don't you go back in the Old Testament? Because that's the stuff back there that the apostles preached to the church in their day. It's the only Bible they had. And they believed it. 2 Corinthians 3. 
And here I want verse 3. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables or fleshy tables of the heart. God is able to write His existence, His aliveness in our hearts so that we believe it and understand it. Chapter 6, verse 16. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? We cannot worship idols, and idols can be almost anything. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He lives his life in us. Christ said he does that. He is alive, and he can bring us to life. First Thessalonians 1, this is a good one. First Thessalonians 1, let's go down about verse 9. For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Emmanuel, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Incredible promises made to you and me, because God is alive, and because Christ is alive, and he will come and live his life in us, and then give us eternal life. First Timothy 3. There's uh, several references make, uh, Paul makes here in Timothy to the living God. 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. But if I tarry long, that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. There is only one church of God. Those who follow this book. There are lots of churches on the earth, but they're the churches of Satan the devil. And the people who worship there worship they know not what. They call on the name of Christ, but they don't believe in the living God. The church of God does. What a testimony. Chapter 4, verse 10 here. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach. Is that you and me? We labor and we suffer reproach. Because we trust in the living God. We suffer and have reproach and persecution because we believe in a God who lives, who is the Savior of all men, those that believe, or it should say, but only to those that believe. Not especially of, but only to those who believe. First uh, Timothy 6, verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they may be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Do we have a world that has been very profit, profitable or economically strong, especially this nation? Highest standard of living that has ever been experienced by any people on the face of the earth. 
but we don't worship God. He won't do good. He won't do evil. Some people believe in God. Some people don't. No. They don't even believe America is mentioned in prophecy if they pay any attention to the Bible at all. How could this nation, leader of the world, not be mentioned in prophecy? That is utterly ridiculous. And yet that's what a lot of the Protestant prophets teach. It's mentioned all through the Bible as the people of Israel, led by Babylon, all the way through. All right, let's go to Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take heed, brethren. Take heed. This is talking to the church, not the world. This is talking to the church. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But you don't believe it. You don't believe it enough. You get discouraged. You quit. Take heed. Exhort one another while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin can harden our hearts. It can discourage us and frustrate us. It can cause us to give up. Don't let it happen. Encourage and strengthen each other so that it doesn't happen. Chapter 9, or the 7, 7 verse 7, 25. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. Speaking of Christ, our high priest. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. He died, but he lives. And he can save you and me. We should take great hope in that, that he really is there, he's really alive, and he goes to God who is alive, the Father, and he intercedes as a go-between for us. He pleads our case. I know people who believe he died at 104 and is still dead, unless he's reincarnated in some other human being. Weird, satanic, Mormon doctrine. Unbelievable. I believe he's a living Christ, not dead. He didn't marry Mary Magdalene and a bunch of other women and have a bunch of kids and die. There's a lot of Mormons that believe that, especially fundamental Mormons and so on. Not so. Not if you believe the Word of God. Uh, chapter 10, verse 31. Now, who are you going to fear? Man? Nephilim? Demons? It is a fearful thing, verse 31, to fall into the hands of the living God. God is alive and He can do evil. It's a fearful thing to fall in His hands. Do those things which will cause him to be happy, not angry with you, so that you don't fall into the hands of his judgment, is what it's referring. Hebrews 12.22, we've quoted this one many times, showing the symbolism of the Bible about who the church is in prophecies, the Old Testament prophecies. But you were come, verse 22, to, the, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, 
the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. You and I in the church are called before the living God. Not a dead God, not a powerless God, but the living God. Fear Him. 1 Peter 1, verse 23. Being begotten again, properly translated, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So, God is alive, and guess what? So is His Word. These are living words. Living waters. Waters that can import or impart life to you and to me. This is the living God. These words are alive with meaning. They're alive with life itself. They can impart life. Because if we do what... He says here, He will give us life. Chapter 2, verse 4 of Peter. To whom coming as unto a living stone. Now you've seen stones out on the ground, up on the mountains. They're dead. Can't do anything. Well, you can hurt your toe if you stub it on them or fall off them. They're hard. They're not alive. He is the chief cornerstone. He's the living stone. Dr. Livingstone, I presume. Remember the African story? Well, that was just a man named after the living stone, who is Christ. Disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. You also as lively stones. We're not to be rockheads, blockheads. Living stones, lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Emmanuel the Christ. We're to be alive. This word is to bring us alive. You know, you don't need to study the Bible just because the church says study the Bible. You need to study the living words of God, the living God, so that it will bring life to your mind and your body, your heart. Now and in the future. A physical life directed and led by God now and immortal life later on. Revelation uh, 7, verse 2. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, and went on and on. But in the book of Revelation, we find that there is a living God. Chapter 5, well, let's see, let's go back to 2 and verse 8 first. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Christ died. He is now alive. He speaks to the church through John in the book of Revelation. And he speaks to all the churches here. But more than once he's referred to as the living God. Chapter 4, for instance. Verse 9. 
And when those beasts give glory and honor, speaking of the 24 elders and the beasts before the throne of God, thanks to him that sat on the throne who lives forever and ever. God is going to always be. He will never die. He will always live. And we can always live with him. That's the whole context here. Uh, 5, verse 14. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. Those creatures, created beings before God's throne, know that he will always be. And they worship that life and him because he has it. Chapter 10, verse 6. And swore by him that lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. We read in Daniel when it's going to end, and here it is echoed. God is the one who lives, and he can decree it. The Mayan calendar does not decree it. I will guarantee you the 2012 is not the end of the age, it is not the end of time, it is not the end at all. I saw a cartoon the other day about how the Mayans decided to end the calendar in December of 2012. That was cute. Here's this Indian sitting there writing, he said, damn, out of ink. I don't know why they quit it then, but if some demon told them that it was then, that's when they ended it. But it ain't going to happen. We already read that there's got to be at least time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years, and another 45, and another 30, 13, 35. And that hasn't even started yet. The two witnesses aren't preaching to the world. The church is not in a place of safety. The temple has to be built. Jerusalem has to be built. This is going to take several years. 2012 is not the end. Forget about it. Quit worrying about it. Believe God. He's alive. The Mayans who wrote that calendar are dead. And probably the demons who inspired them are off trying to deceive someone else. Like the poor old boy that thinks it's coming in May of this year. On and on. Who are we going to believe? I choose to believe these living words. Chapter 15, verse 7. And one of the four beasts gave to the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. He keeps repeating it. The beasts, the false prophet, are going to die. He's going to throw them in the lake of fire. Mankind is going to die. And only God can resurrect. So if you want to worship somebody... Worship he who is going to live forever and ever. And I'm going to close this quickly here in Revelation 1. I skipped over this on purpose because it encapsulates the whole thought. John believed that Christ had been resurrected. And when Christ gave a revelation to mankind and to the church through John, what does he address? He addresses who God is, who Christ is. He talks about the seven churches. And those seven churches are pictured at the end of the age. I was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord, or the Lord's day, not on Sunday. 
But all the prophecies talk about the day of the Lord at the end of the age. So John is talking about the end time events in this book. And who is he talking about? I was projected to the time of the day of the Lord, the end of all these events on earth. And I heard a great voice behind me, as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. And those seven churches exist today because this is an end time prophecy for them, not just the church in that day. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like the Son of Man, he was shaped like a man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head, his hair, were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. You can't look on God and live in his glorified state. This is what he looks like. He's alive. He's not dead. He is there not to do good or to do evil. He's alive. He lives. His feet like fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as a sound of many waters. You've heard a great roaring waterfall? Been to Ni uh, Niagara? Angel Falls? Some of these places? Crashing din it makes. Powerful voice. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth, he has a mouth, when a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was as the sun shines in his strength. Like the sun at noon on the 4th of July. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. <laughs> this would have frightened you out of your skin. And he laid his right hand upon me and say, saying to me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. And you'll read in Zechariah 4 that there will be two who feed the seven churches the golden candlesticks just before Christ returns. He's alive. He's coming back. What a beautiful description of him right here. And he says, I live forevermore. Now, is that the God you want to serve? I think we believe that. And the whole world is going to come to believe that soon.
You have a sneak preview, brethren, and a chance to react and to fear him and not fear what man or Satan can do. Fear not them which are able to destroy the body, but he which is able to destroy body and soul and the second death. It's not just Gideon or David or Job or those who say, it's a conspiracy, or there's Nephilim, or the demons. Don't fear them. Fear him who is able to destroy body and soul. Not those that can kill your body. So what does mankind do? What does the church do? We run in paranoid fear of what man is about to do. And God says, don't do that. Fear me. I can give you death or I can give you life. Therefore, choose life.